Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of James chapter 4. Book of James chapter 4 will be in verses 13 through 17 this morning. We'll read it in a few moments, but I'll go ahead and set it up first. When I was in grade school, there was, well, only one book I remember going to, and I went to it over and over again in the grade school library. It's a book on the Titanic. Titanic was found around 18, 1985, so it couldn't have been too long after it was discovered that this book was published, and I was reading it, and it had my attention. The Titanic is a symbol of great human ambition. It is a symbol of human ambition. Even the name of the ship, Titanic, speaks of all of the expectation and anticipation surrounding the construction and the design of that ship. Its size, on its maiden voyage, it was the largest ship on the water in its day. 2,224 passengers and crew for that first voyage. And no expense was spared in its design or its construction. Listen to this description. She boasted opulent staterooms, luxurious dining rooms, sumptuous smoking rooms with ornate ceilings, and an elegant grand staircase. She had an eight-piece orchestra, elevators, libraries, a swimming pool, a Turkish bath, a gymnasium, a squash court, everything to satiate the desires of 325 first-class passengers as well as all the rest. She was the leading, at the leading edge of technology, inspiring awe and wonder in those who saw her. And most amazing of all, her builders assured she was absolutely unsinkable. And today, the ship is at the bottom of the sea where it has rested since its first and only voyage. Early on the morning of April 15th, 1912, the ship hit an iceberg, and two hours later, that ship was underneath the water. And bodies today are gone where only shoes remain. They predict that, or it wouldn't be prediction, they sense that uh, by around 1950, all of the bodies and even the bones were completely consumed by sea creatures, large and very, very small. Well, there are some curious details that we've learned about the ship, certainly since its wreck. It didn't have to be so tragic after all. Did you know there were only one-third the number of lifeboats that would be required to service the entire ship? Even that morning, they'd canceled the exercises, the emergency exercises that would have better prepared them for the deployment of what lifeboats they had, many of which that night when it was sinking went out partially full. How could that be? As James Cameron puts it in his screenplay, the ship was not destroyed by an iceberg alone. It was also destroyed by a state of mind, an, unforeseen, an unseen force that would ultimately lead to the whole era's downfall. And what was, that what was that unseen force? In a word, he says, arrogance. Somewhere along the line, human ambition, a good thing, converted to human arrogance, a very bad thing, and only a close step away, an imperceivable move almost at times. 
And for this reason, the Titanic is not just a symbol of human ambition, but of human arrogance, an ironic tale of misplaced confidence of human beings in the force of their own will, in the force of their own will. And this is the way of the world, the hope of the humanity in the hands of human human will. Well, the people James is writing to are likely skilled and successful first century business people. James calls them to humble themselves before the Lord. And last week we saw how this humility affects how we approach one another. Next week we'll see how this humility affects how we approach our possessions and wealth. And this week we'll see how this humility before the Lord affects how we approach our plans, how we approach our futures. So let's read together James 4, 13 through 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. But what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. If the Lord wills. If the Lord wills. Another common phrase that we can credit to James. And another phrase that is commonly misused. Sometimes as a pious mantra. Something we throw out there without even realizing we said it. If the Lord wills. Sometimes as a kind of magic formula that if we say, if the Lord wills, somehow that will baptize and bless our will and make it come about. And sometimes to get out of some responsibility, like studying for a math exam, one of my very earliest memories of theological failure and collapse was in a conversation with my own mother. I was about 15 years old and. Uh, Uh, had a hard time with math. And we were in some kind of discussion about how hard I would study for the upcoming exam. And you can imagine which side of the argument that I was on. And somewhere in the mix of that discussion, I remember saying this and she remembers me saying this. I said, if God wills for me to pass the test, then I'll pass the test. I'm sure I found out what God's will was for my test in (laughs) short order. Often enough, this phrase is misused. But even more often than that, and often in response to its misuse, it's neglected altogether. It's neglected altogether. So today we're going to bring it back. We're bringing it back. We're bringing back the words, if the Lord wills. But more important than the specific words is the worldview from which it springs. A particular view of the world that sees all of life under the frame and under the umbrella of the providence of God. For there is nothing more appropriate for any person than to acknowledge the Lord in all of life. And there is nothing more arrogant for any person than to ignore the Lord in any part of life. That's the thrust of what James is doing. But we'll start where he starts and we'll walk our way through. Here's our outline for the morning. Three parts, the presumption of merchants, the properties of mist, and the prerogative of the Lord. 
First, the presumption of merchants. In verse 3, James addresses merchants. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year here or there and trade and make a profit. Now, if you didn't have a sense of where this whole thing was going, you might be struck by this statement uh, as being pretty mundane. In fact, it might even strike you as being a pretty darn good thing to say. Kind of thing my dad would have said to me growing up, plan your work and work your plan. Something Solomon would have commended who spoke of the ant and pointed us to the ant who is making preparations for its food long in advance, seasons ahead. Plans are good and these are even good plans with all of the elements of a good plan, the time, today or tomorrow, a year from now. Decisions, strategic decisions, we will go. Places, such and such, a town, abilities, we will trade, and outcomes expected, we will make a profit. So what then could be the problem with a statement like this? Well, look at what he says next. James tells them, you say these things, and yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. Captain Obvious James, of course they would have known that they don't know what tomorrow will bring. But apparently they actually needed to be reminded of that. Because it appears that they were living like this was only a technicality. They were living with an inappropriate measure of confidence in the next day because of an inappropriate measure of confidence in themselves. And so they did more than describe their plans. They presumed to determine the future by force of human will. And that is a problem. For it is not just untrue, but as James will say in verse 16, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Yikes. Yikes for them, right? Maybe any of you who are merchants, Yikes for you. No. Yikes for all of us. Because this isn't about business plans or making a buck. We might think it is with a quick reading that he's taking issue with those things. Not at all. This is about all such boasting, he says. It's not about the pursuit of money. It's about our mindset in the pursuit of anything at all. It's not even about human ambition, but about arrogance from ambition untethered from the admission that God is God and that we are, and that we are not. So when James says, come now you who say, he is talking to all of us. Come now you who say, this fall or spring I will go into such and such a town, to such and such a university, and I will spend four years there, and I will get such and such a degree with honors. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow I'll go into such and such a town and get a job and buy a house and have two cars and retire with time to travel the world. So come now, you who say, this year or next we will go into such and such a town and get married and spend three or four years and then have three children spaced out by two and a half years each for all of our really serious reasons because we've really thought this one through. One more. Come now, you who say, this year or next, 
We will establish a great church. We will plant a church. We will build a new facility. And after a year, we'll hire three new staff and everyone will love their pastor and other pastors will look to me as a model for faithful ministry. Don't think that pastors and churches and ministerial staff are excluded from the temptation to entrust ourselves to our own plans and wisdom for earthly, worldly aims. But thankfully, our work is in the word and we are constantly reminded from the word of who we really are. 1 Corinthians 3, 7, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Makes you feel good as a pastor, but only God who gives the growth. And that does make me feel, and all of us should feel good, that God is the one who brings growth. For if we know ourselves and we know the human problem, only he could. James gives us a kind of uh, mad lib. Guys, remember mad libs? They're dangerous things. Today or tomorrow, he says, this or that town, it's like a fill in the blank for what you would say for your plan in your life. The plans are good, but if the posture is presumptuous, then it is from an arrogant heart and it's evil. So remember, you may be able to make a lot of good decisions about tomorrow and you may be really, really good at perceiving where things are going and making the right calculation and the right decision for your business or your life based on your perception of what's coming. But you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Something easy to forget. Now we might be willing to believe what James is saying here. It is after all in the Bible. So we believe it. This kind of talk, that is this kind of posture through these kinds of words is arrogant and it's evil. I agree with James. But maybe we have a bit of a difficult time if we're honest, really feeling what James is saying really feeling the evil of it. This will require some more reflection. James figures that we'll need a little bit more to come along with him. It's why he says more than you don't know the future and your boasting is arrogant and evil. He proceeds to humble us with an insult or it feels like it at first. He proceeds to ask us a question that at first seems insulting, but it is a basic question and a largely unexamined question, but a question that if we ask it and we answer it right, will position us just right in the universe in relationship to the Lord and to our future and to our plans. And here's the question. What is your life? What is your life? How do you answer it? We often answer a question like that with what our life produces, what we can make with our life, what we can do with our life. The Tower of Babel would have been one generation's answer. The Titanic, another generation's. A Man on the Moon, another generation's. The iPhone in the last decade. And this generation, the emoji. You guys see the emoji Bible is out? Oh, man. Well, James has an answer of his own. What is your life? And the answer is almost on the face of it insulting as the question. You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. You're a mist. 
Which brings us to our next point. The properties of mist. Mist isn't exactly a flattering answer to the question, what is your life? Joel Osteen never talks about mist. But James talks about mist. And James does because he's trying to help us understand our relative insignificance in comparison with God. And it is pastorally perfect for the moment and perfect for the need of his hearers. Now, sometimes what we need to hear is, dear brother or sister, you are made in the image of God. But as soon as we begin to think that we are as God or that we are so wonderful that we don't need God, then what we need to hear is another detail from the garden creation story. And that is that we were made from dust and we will return to the dust. That's effectively what he's doing right here for his hearers. So we get this line about mist. And from that line, we can reflect on three properties of mist. Three properties of mist. Mist is fragile. It is a super weak thing. There is no mascot that is mist. No one is afraid of mist. Mist itself is one of nature's most harmless phenomena. Super small drops of water so weightless that they are suspended in the air. And James did not say you're like a tree which grows up and can shoot through cement. It lives a nice strong long life but it eventually dies. No, he picked mist because mist is fragile from beginning to end. Solomon uses wind to talk about the vanity of life. It's like chasing the wind. You can't grasp it. Mist is that way. It's fragile. Mist is also fleeting. It's fleeting. It appears for a little time, he says, and then it's gone. It has a short life. You see it and you head to the office and then by the time you get to the office, it's, the mist is gone. And scripture pounds us with images, different images, to drive home this idea that life is short. Here Isaiah and Isaiah 40, all flesh is like what? Grass. And it's beauty. What is its beauty like? The flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. And what is your life? According to Isaiah, it's like grass. It's like the flower of the field. Here Job, remember that my life is a breath. Will you frighten a driven leaf and pursue dry chaff? He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. What is your life? Job's answer, it's a breath. It's a leaf. It's a shadow. And so we pray as the psalmist did. Oh Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. You pray that prayer when you know life is fleeting and your life is short, but you need to feel it and you need to really know it. Let me know how fleeting I am. Mist is fragile and it's fleeting. One more thing, mist is forgotten. It's forgotten. As soon as it's gone, it's forgotten. I can't remember any particular occasion of mist it's gone that fast and it is unmemorable. Muhammad Ali died this past week. 
And he was a great, great boxer, truly the world's greatest boxer. And if anyone knew it, Muhammad Ali knew that he was a great boxer. He ensured his legacy by restating in a thousand brilliant ways, conveying in brilliant fashion how great he was. I'm young, I'm handsome, I'm fast, I can't possibly be beat. My mind can conceive it and my heart can believe it, then I can achieve it. It's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. It's a character. Here's my favorite. If you even dream of beating me, you'd better wake up and apologize. <laughs> this guy was hilarious. Bragging when a person says bragging is when a person says something he can't do. I do what I say. I am the greatest. I said that even before I knew I was. And I should be a posted stamp. That's the only way I'll ever get licked. <laughs> and it's clever. The guy dodged apparently 23 punches in 10 seconds. And there's some great videos you can view of this guy in his, uh, in his ring. But he got Parkinson's. And he died. And each of us in, the, in our prime feels as strong as he did, though we know better than to speak like this. If everyone recognized us for as great and as lofty and as strong as we think we are in our prime, oh, we would talk just like this. See what happens to the world's greatest athletes when the world surrounds them, many of them, with the kind of praise and you get something like this, although Muhammad Ali was really quite over the top. But he was a frail man, he was but a man, and death took him still. So remember where we're from. Remember that you're missed. What is your life? Your life is a mist. It's fragile, it's fleeting, and it's forgotten. If this is true, then the Tower of Babel, the Titanic, and every other human attempt to make a name for ourselves really is futile. In enough years, even the Titanic will end up a pile of rust at the bottom of the ocean, they say. We are mist that appears for a little time and then it vanishes. Well, if we were a mist, then such human confidence as we've described really is arrogant. That much is really clear. But is it evil? Is it really evil? And if so, how is it actually evil? How is it evil? We can get our answer from James's next statement. Instead, he says, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills. You see, if you presume to take something that belongs to God, that's evil. It's why murder is more than not nice, but actually evil. Humans bear God's image. It's why slander is called speaking evil against a person. Every person, James says, is made in the likeness of God. And as it is, God is the lawmaker and God is the judge of human hearts. So don't take his seat on the bench, as we saw last week. And it's why making plans while pretending God doesn't exist, while pretending he's not a contingency, is called evil in this instance. 
Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, James has said, makes himself an enemy with God. And if all that you do in a day is imagine with your imagination and your mind the future where the horizon is this world and you look forward to the things of this world and your plans of this world and all of your energy is invested in plans and preparations for outcomes to be enjoyed and sought in this world. All those things are good, but if that's not only dominant, but fills your imagination and mind, that is the mind of a friend of the world. Bound to this world, that is a form of friendship with it. Which brings us to our third point, the prerogative of the Lord. The prerogative of the Lord. The Lord is higher up on the chain of authority, FYI, than we are. In NBA final season right now, sometimes it's hard to tell on a given team who the boss is, whether it's the coach or the players or a particular player. Every sport's a little different. There's give and take. But sometimes you can't tell. Well, in the military, you can tell. And in the universe, there is a very clear chain of command and God is over us and he's not to be missed. Here's how one author put it. It is not enough to recognize that one's own life is uncertain and transitory. It's not quite enough to say, my life is missed. It's here and it's gone. What these merchants need to go on to reckon with is that their lives are also in the hands of God. This world is not a closed system What appears to our senses to be the totality of existence is in fact only a part of the whole. Our lives are in the hands of God. And so we ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills, we will live. He's the one who brings the sun up. He causes us to breathe. He keeps our hearts beating. And if the Lord wills, we will go about our activities. He wills life and he wills our activities. He gives us a capacity to plan. That's where the capacity comes from, is from him. And any capacity to carry out any of our plans is also from him. He also gives the clearance for any of our plans that we pursue. And at an even deeper level in terms of his providence, he specifically ordains and permits the movement of every atom in the universe. No atom is flying solo and so neither are we, however it may feel. In other words, we may plan, but there is a will that is prior to ours and that is higher than ours. In reading this passage, I imagine the teenager, the young me, speaking about where I'm going to go and what I'm going to do tomorrow and this next season. And my mom's going to be driving me around and my parents are going to be paying for those activities and paying for the roof over my house the whole time. It's one thing to describe what I'm planning to do and how things will go, but it's another thing to proudly presume that all of those things are givens. Wait there, son. You will do those things If we allow it, we will do those things. If we decide you will do those things. And so I think that's the difference here is there's a way of speaking about our own lives that ignores the presence and the prerogative of God that is arrogant and evil. And this is one of those things that if we do not learn it from scripture, as James is exhorting us, we will learn it eventually from life. If we live long enough, some of you know this lesson. You've lost something that you've loved 
a house, a spouse, a child, to say nothing of the myriad of unplanned complexities under each of those major headers and areas of life. Or maybe you didn't lose something you love. Maybe there is something that you have deeply, deeply desired that God has withheld from you. You did everything right, but you did not land that promotion. And now you feel stuck. You never did meet or marry that man or woman. And you tried, but you never could get pregnant. And that last one right there would be the one for Christy and I. The trial that taught us to say, if the Lord wills. Before infertility, I said things like, yeah, we're going to spend two years in St. Louis doing youth ministry. Then after that, we're going to move to Louisville where I'll do seminary and there we'll have children. And when we moved to Louisville, I might have said something like, yeah, I'm going to work through school so that when we get pregnant, uh, Christy will be able to come home and care for the children and I'll be supporting. And I had this whole plan, I had this idea of what I was going to do. And it even felt good to sort of explain my good plan. Christy would read, we had good hopes for this, Christy would read books like What to Expect When You're Expecting. And yet what we really needed was what to do when you're expecting, but you're never expecting. And that's the word. That's the Lord. Pregnancy never happened. And then it kept never happening. And then we started talking about what that might mean. Little conversations and then longer conversations. And you're trying to figure this thing out. And we accepted it through tears that this was the Lord's will. Infertility, as with every form of loss, has its own pain profile. It's an invisible kind of loss. It's a cyclical kind of loss, monthly and then with the seasons. And in the Lord's kindness, there are at times marvelous resolutions to some of our losses. And in our family's life, there was a beautiful resolution to this in the gift of children by adoption. And more praise goes to God from our hearts than ever could if he had answered our prayers in just the way that we had prayed them. In God's kindness, this desire has been met for us, but we did not deserve to be parents. Other forms of loss have their own pain profile, and you might be the only one in this congregation that knows your particular form of loss and all of the awkwardnesses and difficulties and disappointments that come with it on the particular days that it overwhelms you. But you are not the only one in this congregation that experiences a unique form of loss and disappointment and awkwardness in your suffering. If we can trust the Lord for eternity, Drew has said, we can trust him for life. And as we look to the cross, we know that he is good and therefore everything that he delivers into our life is also good. Our lives are in the hands of God and we will learn it from scripture. And sometimes God will teach it to us through life as he drives us to scripture to learn just this lesson through the trial he gives to us. So how can we tell if we're submitted to the Lord's will? How can we tell if we're submitted to the Lord's will? Well, it depends on what we mean by the Lord's will. There's his revealed moral will, that is what he requires of us in terms of obedience, and that's straightforward. You look at the page and you look at your life and you can tell if you're in or outside of God's will. 
But then there's his decreed will, his secret, hidden, decreed will. This is the kind that James is referring to you. Do you respond with sadness when things don't work out the way that you had hoped, even with grief? This is often mistaken as a lack of acceptance of God's sovereign purposes, but it doesn't have to mean that. If you are experiencing grief or sad over some kind of loss, that is not incompatible with trust in the Lord. It's been suggested to me that it was the case, but through wrestling and the word, it became clear to me that it is not the case. In fact, sadness can be a sign of a healthy soul, a soul that feels sad. It's something that really is sad, that would appreciate God's blessings for all that they are should he grant them. Sadness is not only okay, it is good. So do you respond with sadness? That's probably a good thing, not an indication that you're not submitted to the Lord's will. But do you respond with envy toward others? Do you respond with anger toward God? And is your sadness really something more like hopelessness and despair that's driving you more and more into your own self and not into the Lord's grace, a dark hole of self-pity. If that's the case, then that is not okay at all. It is born of pride and it's evil. And if that's you, it may be that you have lived far too long on the assumption that God is not a factor in the affairs of your life. And so you were not ready to meet this reality. You were not saying, if the Lord wills, to yourself in your heart or out loud to yourself. And so the moment for you now is merely to confess that you are coming to terms with the fact that God is over the universe and you are not, and you need his help to see how fleeting you are. And those are hard words to say to anyone who is suffering, but where we are angry at God, envious of others, or hopeless in despair, it's what we must hear, for we cannot continue long on that path without destroying our soul and the souls of those in our lives. In your loss, do not think necessarily that the Lord has taken or withheld something from you in order to teach you this lesson, if the Lord wills. But don't count it out, for there is a pattern in Scripture of the God responding to the proud. Pride goes before destruction and the haughty spirit before a fall. But whether God wrote the script of your trial to address the problem of excessive pride or not, your trial will nevertheless purify your soul from a measure of pride to make sure that you are more ready for heaven than you were before the trial. And you can thank God for that, for there is something much worse than God not giving us our will, and it is God giving us over completely to our own wills. So what should we do? Well, now James says, there at the end of the verse, that we know the right thing to do, and if we fail to do it, it's sin. If he knows the right thing to do and he does not do it, it's sin. And that verse has all kinds of application. Sins of omission are real sins. In fact, studying this passage this week, I, uh, I pulled out of the driveway some morning midweek, and I drove half a block away, and then remembered the trash that I meant to take out. I told Christy I would take out, and I thought, I'm going to keep driving. I'm already gone. I thought, no way, I can't do that. <laughs> I know the good thing I ought to do. I'm going to pull back there and go in there and get the trash and take it out. It's done. Uh, 
it would have been sin for me not to do what I had said I would do and not serve my wife in that way. That was a fine application of what James is saying. But the last verse in this passage does seem a little random. I think what he's getting at is this. What is the good thing that you ought to do? Well, you have heard a word about arrogance and you've heard a word about the evil of presumption. Say with James, if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. That's the good thing that you ought to do. Don't hear this message. Don't hear these words and walk away without doing it for It's evil before we're confronted with this passage, but once we're confronted this directly with our frailty as mist, and once we're confronted this directly with God's greatness as the one who is over all things, then to walk away and not acknowledge his lordship, his will, is all the more uh, trouble for us. We are all the more culpable for it. So what should we do? Exactly what James tells us to do. Add this line of code to every script of every plan that you make. You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And the first thing that occurs to you when I say that is, must I say this all the time? No, you don't need to say it all the time. But James says to say it, you say. I know, I know, he says to say it. But look at the biblical authors for our example. Often they did speak in this fashion. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians. I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. Or I hope to send someone, spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Always deferring to the Lord, qualifying his plans. Or in Romans, I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at least succeed in coming to you. He desired greatly and made plans for it. But if the Lord wills, he'll come. But way more often, they didn't say anything like that. They wrote and planned, though, from a pervasive sense of the Lord's governance of all things. So, for example, in Romans 15, Paul says this, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem. Sounds just like the man that James is quoting, but he's not arrogant in it. So this is not a phrase to say all the time. It is a phrase to mean, however, all the time. And since we're going to say it sometimes, let's especially say it for the really big things. I've made reference to family and to education and to vocation in different ways. Those are the big areas that consume lots of our imagination and our planning and our energy and our lives. So let's say, if the Lord is kind to grant me a spouse, if the Lord wills to bless us with children, if the Lord provides me with work. And when he does, and on the harder days, let us not assume, but actually say, it is hard, but the Lord has given me such a gift in my spouse. Pregnancy is hard, but this life in me is a gift. My children are tiring, And they threw up all over me last night. And they break my heart sometimes. But they are a sacred trust from the Lord. My job is full of thorns and trouble. But it is the job the Lord has given to me for the time. And I'll do it with all my heart. And I'm grateful for his provision. And let's not forget that James was originally speaking to business people. Yes, it applies to all of us because boasting is the issue. 
But are not we especially vulnerable in the course of business to trust our business smarts and our calculations? If you own a business, sometimes you may wonder, what is God's will for my business? Well, this is God's will for your business. Go ahead and make whatever plans that you think are best. Don't sin in the course of them. Make whatever plans make the most sense. Then be sure to say to yourself, when it's all planned, if the Lord wills, I will go to this such and such a town and do this or do that. For one of the Bible's most important passages on business, it's curiously absent of particulars we might want from God on business. And yet we are given a framework with which to understand the whole course of our work and the posture that we're to have in all of it. For as hard as we will work, the Lord is the one who blesses the work of our hands. This is speaking like God exists. And Christians, this is what we do. So speak this way. Speak this way to remind yourself that your plans are contingent and his will is perfect. And speak this way to remind everyone else that everything in life is contingent and his will is perfect. And don't just speak this way, but preach to your soul so you'll believe it more. You will find that it's hard to speak boastfully about your plans and your life and your future when you are qualifying all of it with an acknowledgement of God's providence. At the end here, let me say a word to those of you who would not consider yourselves Christians. We are certainly glad that you're here. It is an honest thing to admit to yourself that you do not know the Lord, you have not uh, submitted yourself to him, and that you do not belong to him. And I'm glad that you are seeking him in some measure by sitting under his word today. The Titanic is a very good illustration of a very tragic reality. The tragedy of arrogantly trusting in human plans. Consider that the grand staircase did not save a single person from that ship. Neither did the squash court. Neither did the ornate ceiling save anyone from that ship or the eight-piece orchestra or the high-power radio telegraph. And neither did the watertight compartments and remotely activated watertight doors save a person from that ship that fateful night. And neither can your best works, your most careful plans, and your strongest will save you on the day when you meet God, for there is no match. And so before you can trust the Lord with the stuff of life, which is what this sermon has been about, trusting the Lord with the comings and goings of life, before you can do that, you will need to trust the Lord with life itself. There may be a feeling of security now, but it is an illusion that will give way to reality soon enough and our works will be shown for what they are. Every person who is on the Titanic died, not only those who died with the Titanic when it sank. The Titanic sinking was merely a microwaving of God's future judgment of death for all of us, a bringing into the present what was coming for everyone eventually, a consolidating of the tragedy of human death. But every one of us faces the same end 
and you will. And if at that moment, when you meet death, if you have entrusted your life to this world and its plans, then this world and its plans and possibilities will be all that you have when you face it. If it was arrogant for the people to think that their ship was unsinkable across the Atlantic, then how much more arrogant, though, is it to think that our ship, the ship of our works, the ship of our human will and our plans is unsinkable in the face of the wrath of God? But if at that moment when you die, you have entrusted yourself wholly to the Lord and his plan of salvation, then you will have all that you need for safe passage. For Jesus Christ is God's perfect plan for salvation. Scripture says, it was the will of the Lord, the will of the Lord to crush him because we needed a savior to die in our place to remove our guilt or there's no safe passage. And Jesus prayed on the, eve, on the eve of his own death, not my will, but yours be done. Because we needed a savior who would submit perfectly to his father's will. Because we certainly, none of us, do. And while it did not look like Jesus could save when he was among us, this too was only an illusion owing to human arrogance that decided it needed something else. Jesus was rejected, but we we're told in scripture to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so I plead with you as friends who are on the deck of the Titanic, death is certain and there is only one certain plan for salvation and it is through Christ. However fun the squash may be, however beautiful the music may be, however ornate the ceiling, the whole thing is going down. But there is safety in Jesus. So do not believe in yourself, believe in his name. And don't assume a right to eternal life, but receive eternal life and receive the right to become a child of God. He takes care of his children. As James says, you know the good thing, the right thing to do. And so do it and entrust yourself to the Lord's will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Pastor James's words to us, the Spirit's words to us through these short verses that are so dense that confront us at the deepest parts of our being that come to us, that grab us by the shirt with the question, what is your life? And force us to reckon with the fact that we are missed. Father, humble us before one another. Humble us before the future, for we do not know tomorrow. Help us to know how fleeting we are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.